Psalm 36 today for Romans. I think you'll see why. I might not even read anything from there, but you can. And Psalm 36, a very important passage today of Scripture. As I said, in my absence from you all, I had the opportunity of studying, all, I, yeah, without exception, every day in Florida. And right in the beginning of the day, spent about three hours in Romans, immersed in Romans and commentaries on Romans and a lot of prayerful study. And then I would go out and do my four miles so three hours, then four miles, and then that was without exception. So I, I'm thankful to God that I'm reporting that to you because I work for you. You're, I'm a servant. You're a servant for Christ's sake. And had the chance to complete a lot of books, several books, in fact. And yet when I came back, it was the Holy Spirit, as always, who goes way beyond what you expect way beyond what men have taught, though I appreciate, I appreciate the insights that many of them have given, men and women. But the Holy Spirit, every time I step into the study now, and I know this is partly as a result of the partnership of your prayer with me in my study, the study has been remarkable, and it keeps me in a state of mild astonishment constantly. And I know that to labor in the spirit and to, as Paul said, I serve Christ with my spirit, not just the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit enabling our spirit and the spirit that he has given to me is a spirit of awe and of audacity, both awe and audacity, audacity or boldness because of the awe that comes from God. Another thing, before we get started with this, I was struck, of course, by the passing of one of the teenage idols of the 70s and 80s, David Cassidy. He was my age, so obviously taken way too young. But uh, no, he was, I believe he was 67. But I happened to glance when I was looking for some doctrinal stuff. I looked and saw the announcement of his passing and his daughter Katie Cassidy said something that's haunted me ever since she said his last words David Cassidy's last words a man with fame a man with gifts a man with talents his last words were quote so much wasted time and with that he passed into the presence of the Lord with that statement he served the Lord because he reminded us that we have to redeem the time, especially now, for the days are particularly evil, and the powers that be, and by that I don't mean political powers, don't get caught up in that nonsense of hatred and bitterness and back and forth battling in the flesh. The powers that be are sin and death and the flesh, which controls the Adamic ontology. The evil that happens in our day is not because of one person or another or a politician or another or a dictator or another or a party or another party. It's the condition we're in because of sin. And the powers that be are exceptionally rearing their ugly heads today in part as a response to a message that announces their defeat, their utter defeat in Jesus Christ a message that cannot be stopped, a message that will not be stopped, 
even though opposition to it arises everywhere, especially within the fellowship called Christendom. This message is ensconced beautifully in Romans. Romans offers us a universal horizon of redemption, but it offers us a glimpse into the drastic center of our redemption, the God-forsakenness experienced by Jesus Christ on our behalf, and the triune God in the act of salvation in Christ. The longer study, or the longer title for our present study in Romans, the epistle, I've entitled Reading Romans with the Light On, and that's our study, Reading Romans with the Light On. Psalm 36, 9 says, in your light, speaking to Yahweh, speaking to God, the psalmist David, who's quoted more times than you'd care to know in Romans, in your light. David says, we see light. So we, read, we are reading Romans, studying Romans in that light. Ephesians 5, verse 14 says, Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's what's happening during our study. Psalm 36 which in the Septuagint translation, the LXX as it's called, because it was put together by 70 scholars for the Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt. Psalm 36, which is in the Septuagint, 35, another one of those maddening things we do in our study. It's described in the very first verse as, quote, an oracle within my heart, David said, an oracle within my heart. Concerning the transgression of the wicked. And we have here pretty much the first three chapters of Romans, at least 118 to 320, the transgression of the wicked. This part of Psalm 36, 1, in fact, is quoted in a very monumental place in Romans 318. Romans 3.18 is the last link of a chain of Old Testament quotations that are taken in the main from the Psalms. We're going to discover that the Psalms have far more impact in Romans than has ever been thought before, at least by commentators and students of Romans. And in fact, the Psalms that Paul Quotes in 310 to 18 include Psalm 59, Psalm 107, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3, along with Psalm 140 and verse 3. Psalm 143, 2 is one of the key passages that Paul quotes and accommodates to his argument, and that is that no flesh will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. No flesh will be rectified, set right in God's sight by the works of the law. And so this link, these links that he quotes lead to the shutting of every mouth in the world in Romans 3.19. So right after Psalm 36.1 is quoted in Romans 
Romans 3.19 says, so that every mouth in the whole world will be closed. And I've said before, Romans, is, Romans actually shuts the mouth of the whole world, shuts anyone's mouth who is willing to boast about his own accomplishments or boast in her own power or intellect or riches or wealth or righteousness. It shuts every mouth in the world. But at the end of Romans, Romans opens every mouth, Jew and Gentile alike, all people of all times, in a univocal voice of praise and worship of God. In Romans fifteen six, in between the shutting of the mouth of the whole world and the opening of the mouth of all the peoples in praise is God speaking in his son, Jesus Christ. God, who in times past has spoken in partial ways and many ways through the prophets, has now spoken to us in his son. He's spoken to us finally in his son. He's spoken to us definitively in his son. He has spoken to us thoroughly and completely in his son. And so Isaiah 59 and verse 7 and 8 is also included in the included in the litany of scriptural indictments which begins at Romans 3:10. And there, 3.10 closes it off by saying there is, or begins it rather, by saying there is none righteous, not even one. It ends with Romans 3.18. Again, a quote from Psalm 36.1, which is a direct quote from Psalm 35 in the Septuagint translation, the Greek text of the Hebrew Scriptures. It says there is no fear of God before their eyes. The transgression of the wicked is further described in Psalm 36, 2 through 4. He gets more specific. And when I read this, I said, man, he's speaking about Paul. The transgression here is one of a criminal, one of an evildoer, one of a persecutor, all of which pertain to Saul of Tarsus. Paul, under the control of sin, in what we call the Adamic ontology. Paul under the control of sin, was in fact the first and the worst of human transgressors, first in terms of being worst. So, the description is actually that of a criminal transgressor. But this is what Romans does too. Suddenly, shockingly, astonishingly, the thought of David's heart flies to the mercy of God in verse 5. It flies right there to the mercy of God. And the word he uses is eleos, which is a variation on the word used in Romans 11.32. Romans 11.32 is probably the heart of the announcement of all of Romans. He concluded all, he imprisoned all, literally, in disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And how is that mercy upon all? Through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. All receive mercy. After describing the depth of this transgression, the psalmist wonders at the mercy of God, the Elios mercy. Elios. 
He wonders at this because he sees this mercy extending further than the transgression of the transgressor, further than the transgression of the worst kind of transgressor, like Saul of Tarsus. There are outcries to heaven. As we know, when God sent, when God came to Abraham, and he came with two terminators, two terminating angels that were sent to terminate the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding metroplex, because of their evil doing, which had mostly to do with prosperity unappreciated. Prosperity unappreciated. And why was this? Yahweh says to Abraham, the cry of these cities has reached my ears in heaven. The outcry has reached my ears. The speeches of ungodliness has reached my ears. In Exodus, Yahweh says to Moses, I've heard the cries of my people in slavery. They're under slavery to a power from which they cannot deliver themselves. I've heard their cries, and I will go down and deliver them. The cries of those in slavery, and the greatest slavery of all is slavery to sin, as Jesus announced it in John eight thirty four to 35. You can get all the political liberation you want. You can get all the freedom that you think you need politically and socially. You're not free until you're free from the dictatorship and tyranny of the power of sin. That's what Romans announces of freedom from that. The cry that most reached the ears of God in heaven, however, is the cry of his son. My God, my God. This cry of dereliction, this cry of God forsakenness. God heard the cry of his son. And God hears the prayers of the believer who cries out in this time of tribulation and adversity because the Holy Spirit articulates inarticulable prayers from our hearts. We pray for things that we know about, but there are things that we have in our hearts that we can't even articulate. We cannot pray as we ought to. We can't put them in words. So the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. In Romans eight twenty six and 27. Cry is heard in heaven. And we know that from a vision in Revelation. That vials that are held there. Golden vials are filled with the prayers of the saints. So immediately after describing the depth of this transgressor, the psalmist heart flies to the mercy of Yahweh, which he says reaches to the heaven. Mercy cries out louder than judgment, doesn't it? Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he cries out about Yahweh's faithfulness, aletheia, which is truth or fidelity, which reaches to the clouds. These are two images of limitlessness, limitlessness, the height 
of the love of God in Christ Jesus to the heavens, to the clouds, his mercy to the heavens, his fidelity, his faithfulness, his truth to the clouds. And so the pattern of Psalm 36 is the pattern of Romans. On these Sundays, I'm asking the question, quidsit in the Latin, quidsit, what is it? What is Romans, the epistle? What, just what is it? And on Wednesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, we're answering the question, onset, is it really that? By going into a deeper exegetical explication of the scriptures. The pattern of Psalm 36 then is the pattern of Romans. That pattern was in Paul's heart. He knew these Psalms. He knew them intimately. The indictment of the transgressor is established first, just like it is in Romans. The indictment of the transgressor and then the unlimited mercy of Yahweh. I was reading a kind of easy-to-read book on sermons on Romans by Fleming Rutledge, and she said all in her youth, she grew up in the Christian church. All her life, she never, she said, she never heard a sermon on Romans 11.32. The mercy of God on all. Never. And then she said, I think that, and, and I'm paraphrasing, I think that should be augmented because this verse deserves 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of sermons to be preached on it. So I don't think we're going to exhaust that passage. I agree with her. Romans eleven thirty two. Focus on that throughout our whole study of Romans, and I think you'll profit greatly by it. The extension of God's mercy to the heaven and of his truth, which is another word for his absolute fidelity. That's what Romans is about. The fidelity of God revealed in the obedience of Jesus Christ, resulting in the transformation of all creation, in the redemption of all mankind. That's what Romans is all about. That's the gospel unchained by tradition. That's the gospel unfettered by the boasting Christian or the boasting religionist who thinks he or she's got it all together because they made some kind of decision that God was happy with or they did some kind of service that God was pleased with. Every mouth, and I include myself in that with emphasis, is shut. First thing a preacher should do is shut his mouth and then let God open it to speak of his son. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord and our, we are servants of yours for Christ's sake. Boldness doesn't have to mean volume, incidentally. Some of the most audacious and bold shattering of tradition statements that were ever made were made in a quiet, soft-spoken voice. In fact, a voice that's rarely heard by people called the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
This same truth and fidelity, this same mercy and fidelity is found in another psalm. They point to the faithfulness of God and his mercy and truth. Another psalm, that's 8510, write that one down. They, it says, mercy and truth have met together. It's almost like a little thing of let's meet. It's like a man and a lady meeting. Let's meet secretly. It's a kind of a planned tryst, as they say. But where did they meet? And so you say, where did they meet? What did they do? Well, it says, mercy and truth have met together. And then it says, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Oh, ooh. righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's the Septuagint of Psalm 8411, the Greek text. But we have it in our English Bibles as Psalm 8510. There, Elias, same word, or mercy, and aletheia, or truth, or fidelity, are said to have met together even as righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Reminds me of Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified, rectified, set right with God, we have peace. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in us because they've kissed each other in Christ. So I ask the question, where? Where have mercy and truth met together? And where have righteousness and peace kissed each other? See, we want to know that. This is a romance novel. And I have to say, I've never read one. That just saved me from a lot of the guys I know. So the answer to that question is mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and peace have kissed each other in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the person and in Jesus Christ, the event of God's self-revelation, especially at the cross, which is the mercy seat where Jesus Christ became the propitiation for our sins. And I love John and his agreement with Paul when he says, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the gospel unchained. First John 2, 1 and 2 compared with Romans 3.25. Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other in the event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in the event of his death, his burial, his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do I bring in burial here? Well, because the gospel includes that facet, the burial of Jesus Christ. Why do I include burial as an element of the event called Jesus Christ, because burial is a pretty big deal in Romans. In Romans 6, we were buried with him, as is illustrated in baptism, as much as we were crucified with him and raised with him. We were buried with him. The transgressor may bury his sin under a cloak of self-flattery, and self-righteousness. But God has buried the transgressor in Jesus Christ, who died the death of a criminal, according to Isaiah 53, 
and was buried. But on the third day, Jesus arose from the dead. The transgressor, therefore, the non-elect person, remained in the grave. The righteous one, the elect person, arose from the grave. In fact, Psalm 85, 11, which is really the Septuagint 84, 12, shouts this, shouts in a conclusion. See, the gospel is preached and advanced in the Old Testament scriptures. The mystery wasn't revealed in the New Testament times. It was revealed when the first prophet spoke the first breath of the Old Testament scriptures. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. That's the gospel. We're going to see this unfold right before our eyes. The righteous person, the righteous one, the elect person arose when Jesus arose. And again, the shout of acclamation in Psalm 85, 11, truth, that's faithfulness, is caused to rise up from the earth. Truth rises up from the earth. Truth personified in Jesus Christ rises up from the earth, ascends above the man of the earth, Adam, stands upon the dust of the earth, as Job put it in 19, 25, and 26. Truth springs up from the earth. That is the resurrection of the one who said, I am the truth, and I will be raised on the third day. Truth is caused to rise up from the earth, and righteousness, says the scripture, stoops down, stoops to look down from heaven. God's truth, then, is personified in Jesus and exemplified as God's faithfulness in Christ's obedience. The gospel is all about God's faithfulness expressed in Christ's obedience, his obedience to the death of the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection from the dead, where he rises up from the earth. To this, the heaven stoops down to look. Angels desire, says Peter in 1 Peter 1, angels long to peer, to stoop down into this glorious truth and look. Because they can see God on his throne and have for countless millennia. They can't see God in his explicit self-revelation unless they look down on the cross of Jesus Christ. Nobody knows God outside of that self-revelation. When you have lifted me up, Jesus said, then you'll know. Then you'll know that I am. Then you'll know. Yahweh. The great gap in the preaching of the patristic teachers. They saw the universal horizon, but they almost missed because they kind of de-emphasized the heart of the matter, the cross of Christ. That was their lacuna, their lack, their gap, which we will intend to fill in in Romans, in our study of Romans, the epistle. 
The deliverance of God, in other words, has come down from heaven to lift the sons of men from their plight and their terrible slavery to sin, to rescue humankind from their existence in the man of the earth and to grant them participation in the second man, the man from heaven, or as he's called in 1 Timothy 2.5, a summary of Paul's thoughts on the matter, the man, Christ Jesus, the sole mediator between God, all of who God is, and mankind, all of who mankind is. One mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. The spirit of Christ, says the scripture, contrary to a lot of dispensational Arguments, it says the spirit of Christ was in them, the prophets of the Old Testament, in them, testifying in advance of the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah and of the salvation that was to come to you. Romans is all about that. The sufferings and the glory of the Messiah. The fact that the Messiah enters his glory specifically through suffering, and we are joint heirs together with him, if indeed we suffer together with him. Romans eight seventeen, And that indeed means, and we are. It's not just the suffering of persecution that's rewarded with this, as it were. Our sufferings are related to the sufferings of creation itself, which groans in anticipation of liberation. We are living in this life in the groaning for anticipation of glorification. We aren't living in glorification. That would be arrogance. We are anticipating it, and we see the glorification of God in Christ. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets as a testimony to this truth in advance, says 1 Peter 1.11 in keeping with Romans 1-2 and Romans 3-22, the law and the prophets testifying to this. And angels stoop down to peer into this awesome event, which is the salvation that has come to us. So here's what is Romans. What is it? Quits it. And it'll take a long time to answer that, but here it is in essence. What we have in Romans is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, kept silent for ages of time gone by, but now being manifested through the writings of the prophets by the command of the God of eternity to bring about the obedience that is faith by all the nations. Where is that? It's Romans 16, 25 to 26. That's where it is. The most controversial passage in Scripture is Romans 16, 25 to 27. Believe that. I can show you why. And it's right there that I'm having the audacity to say that that's what Romans is. The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. A revealed secret. That's what Romans is. And the effects of that is unity. The effects of that. That Romans isn't about a 
an argument between Paul and a Jewish Christian teacher. That's part of what's there. It's between the true gospel and a nomistic or legalistic gospel. Romans isn't all about trying to promote unity among five factions in Rome. It is, and it does that. Romans isn't about Paul wanting unity among all the scattered, fractured saints in Rome so that when he gets there, he can have some support, both moral and monetary, for his mission to Spain where the gospel has never been heard. That's there. These are all things that people say are Paul's purpose in the gospel. But the purpose of Romans is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery, which effects a cure for all those other problems. It's only in the light of that mystery in which God intends to sum up everything in his son that all these other problems are solved. So there are subsidiary things that everyone has said that's the main reason Paul wrote Romans, the main reason Paul wrote Romans. Well, those are all little circles which are enclosed in a bigger concentric circle. The universal horizon is there and the dead center of the Christ and him crucified is there. The obedience of faith is not our decision to believe and our power to obey. This is an attack by me on American Pelagianism, which is the most subtle form of cloaked boasting that there is left in the world today. The obedience of faith is not our decision to believe, nor is it our power to obey. It is brought about, Romans 1, 5, Romans 16, 25, and 26. Faith is brought about. It comes about. It's brought about by God in Romans 10, 17. Through the message, akoe, not the hearing, the message, akoe, the message. Who has believed our report, says Isaiah? And I can understand what he's saying. Who has believed the gospel at this level? Faith comes about. It's elicited, ignited, kindled, whatever you want to say, evoked. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of his grace. It becomes a participation in the fidelity of Christ by whose obedience all are rectified with his life. Romans 5.18, the heart of the heart of the matter. It is what Lonergan and other theologians called the obediential potency. An obediential potency, a potency for obedience, an inclination to obey that was in Christ being now in us. To have the mind of Christ doesn't just mean that we have his thinking. It means that we are gifted with his intention, gifted with his obediential potency. Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Rome to saints that were already evangelized. Why? Because the gospel has to keep on being preached in order for us to keep on participating in earnest and in reality in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not our own faithfulness. We're redeeming the time here. I don't want your last words to your children to be so much wasted time. What a summary of a life. And yet, I'm sure that Mr. Cassidy will be quite surprised 
that wasted or redeemed, the mercy of God is toward all. I'm sure he's already realized this. Such a young man, only 67. And we do, of course, pray for his family as we do for those who lose loved ones everywhere. Here today, we're discovering this gospel of God, which is all about his son. It's all about his son. That's why the selfie generation doesn't like this, because it's not all about us. It's not all about me. It's not all about, like George Harrison's song, I, me, mine. It's all about God's son. It's a gospel that's been promised in advance through his prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. And here today we're discovering that the gospel of God's son, who is also a descendant of David who wrote Psalm 36, 1 and following, was promised in advance through David and through the Psalms of David and the Psalms of others. David only wrote about 70 of the 150 Psalms. There were many other writers. It's not that the mystery was hidden until the New Testament or silent until Paul. It was silent in God until he promised it in the Old Testament scriptures, manifested it in Jesus Christ, explicated or explained it in the New Testament, not least by any means in our little epistle called Romans. The the truth of a universal salvation has been discovered. It's no new thing. It's been discovered over and over again, reiterated. It's iteratively discovered in history by many people in many places and many times, including our own. This is not a new thing under the sun. Curb your enthusiasm. Its roots, in fact, go back to the Bible Not just in a passage here and there, but in its entire sweep, in its total narrative. The patristic theologians, also called the church fathers, are now more than ever appreciated, and rightly so, for their interpretation of Paul as a universalist. But there's so many different kinds of universalists. There are Muslim universalists, there are Hindu universalists, there are Buddhist universalists, there are Christian universalists, and they all don't have, not all of them have, the message of the gospel because their universality isn't rooted in the bloody cross of Christ. And in the triune God who is revealed through the Spirit and the Scriptures. The patristic theologians have, therefore, what I've seen, in many cases, a lacuna. That's a word that I've just learned in the past few years, lacuna. It means a space, but it more means a gap, an empty space in their writings. While they accentuate the universal horizon, which we're going to do, of the salvation of God, which is the breadth and the width of that salvation, They tend not 
to emphasize so much the center of that salvation or the depth, the suffering endured by the triune God in the event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I can't appreciate the universal horizon. I can't appreciate the breadth and the width without the depth of the suffering of the triune God specifically manifested in the man Christ Jesus in whom all of divinity in its fullness resides bodily and in whom all of humanity resides through the redemptive act of God in Christ. He's the person. And so the combination of the center and the horizon of our salvation adds up to what the Hebrew writer called so great a salvation. And by the combination, I don't mean just the addition. I mean the multiplication. The depth multiplied by the breadth and width. We'll get to the height in a moment and I'll close very shortly. And this writer to the Hebrews speaks of so great salvation and urges his readers not to neglect it. Whenever preachers limit this salvation to a small elect or even a big elect, they're neglecting the so great salvation of God. That's what I've done in the past. I repented of that sin, of that shortcoming. I have many more repentances, I'm sure, to follow. It is important that the light be turned on to both the universal horizon and the drastic center of our so great salvation, which is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who endured the cross, despising the shame, who is now set down at the right side of God in the position of supreme exaltation, King of kings and Lord of lords. You want to say God is great? It doesn't make sense, and it's not true unless you're talking about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Yeah, God is great. That one. Paul, therefore, Psalm 36 in verse 9 proceeds to tell us this. He goes beyond that. He says, with him, Yahweh is the fountain of life. He starts out with the depth of transgression. Then he goes to with him is the fountain of life. He talks about this height to the clouds and height to the skies. Then he talks about in Psalm 9, 36, 9, with Yahweh is the fountain of life. Paul also speaks of that fountain of life by saying that by the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, all of humankind are rectified with his life and given life. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And don't you dare, preacher, don't you dare, theologian, don't you dare, evangelist, qualify and mess with that verse as if it's talking about a partial humanity. To talk about a partial humanity is to proclaim a partial Christ. Don't do it. Repent. Just as many Christians need to, in the words of Richard Wormbrandt, repent of their repentance. So, with him is the Yahweh is the fountain of life. By saying that, he's saying that by the obedience of the one man Christ, 
all of humankind, including the criminal transgressor, including the guy or the woman that you think is the most is the poster child for evil in the world today. You want to be shocked about that. But I got a bigger shock for you than the shock of the most heinous transgression ever committed. And that is the most heinous nature of the cross of Christ that paid for it. We are guilty. Of standing in awe at man's transgression over awe at God's mercy. It's arrogance. Cloaked arrogance. I like what Jesus said to the Pharisees, until I came, you had a cloak for your sin. It was self-righteousness. I just came and ripped it off. Superman minus his cape. Just another guy. Now, this is the gospel unchained. All of humankind, including the criminal transgressor, to him rectifying life comes. This is the gospel unchained. The world right now is chafed by the chains of its slavery. And Christendom is chafed by the chains of an insufficient gospel. The gospel of God, Paul's gospel, is the power of salvation to all who believe. But as the great interpretive epistle of Paul called 1 Timothy 4.10 says, but not exclusively to all who believe. Therefore, the scripture that recaps the major themes of Paul says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all human beings, especially those who are presently believing, especially, but not exclusively. Then Psalm 36, 9 says, in your light, we see light. Here's the bracket of the message I began with today. In the light of the knowledge that comes from Yahweh as seen in the face of Jesus Christ, Yahweh, Yeshua, Yahweh, who is Jesus. We see light. We see Romans. We interpret Romans in that light. Thanks to God through Jesus Christ and through the spirit of Jesus Christ, the theological lacunae or gaps of the patristic scholars is being filled in. For there's more than one gap in their teachings. They talk about the eventual apocatastasis. Jürgen Moltmann is a prime example of the discovery of the salvation of all humankind being rooted in the experience of God-forsakenness by Jesus in his crucifixion and death. And before him, Karl Barth, or as the Germans say, Karl Barth. He wasn't even a German. He was a Swiss person. Karl Barth had some astonishing things to say in his own commentary on Romans. It's the most difficult one I've ever read, but it's a challenge. It's one of those where you want to throw the book against the wall, then pull out your 30-30 lever action and shoot five shells into it. And then you think, okay, let me just leave it. I'll leave it on the shelf. And then it starts to pop in your mind. Karl Barth also had some astonishing things to say in Romans some of which I agree with, many of which I don't. But he had an astonishing emphasis on the already aspect 
of this eventual restoration of all things. In his epistle to the Romans, which he wrote, his sixth edition, you think I had to amend things. He had to amend his commentary six times. 1933, in the sixth edition, he wrote this about Christ's death. Page 193. The death of Christ dissolves the fall by bringing into being the void in which the usurped independence of man can breathe no longer. The usurped independence of man can breathe no longer. Not in the light of Yahweh, Yeshua. Not in the light of Romans. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. You died with Christ. You are alive to him, alive to God in him. The usurped independence of man without God, which we call the Adamic ontology under the control of sin, can breathe no longer. How can we continue to sin if the man who usurped independence from God can't breathe any longer? A lot of stuff come from, came from Karl Barth. And as if to balance the eventuality of the universal apocatastasis with a pretty emphatic already, not too unbalanced, though. You've got to balance both the already and the not yet. But Barth wrote with audacity on page 182. He comments on Romans 5.19, the obedience of one man. He says, quote, In the light of this obedience, there is no man who is not in Christ. That's the shocker for today. That's the shocker. In the light of this obedience, there is no man who is not in Christ. So, Katie, Cassidy, think about that when you think about your dad. Don't think about a wasted life. Think about there is no man who is not in Christ. In the light of this obedience, not your dad's, but Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on to say, all are renewed and clothed with righteousness, and all are become a new subject, and therefore set at liberty and placed under the affirmation of God, or God's yes. But as what we are, thou and I, he says, can think of the positive relationship with God only in terms of hope. As we are reminded by the words, they shall be accounted righteous. Romans 2.13, 3.10, and 5.1. He then says, and this is it locates us, we stand only at the threshold. Yes, but we do stand there. Such then is the new world to which we move. So please note in our final closing phase that this phrase, in the light of this obedience, which he says in Karl Barth's passage, Romans must be read in the light of this obedience, the obedience of Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of Christ unto the extent of death by crucifixion, which in turn, and some people have even said that Romans is pretty much an explication or an explanation of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which ends with every knee bowing. And it's kind of true because in Romans 14, 10, in 11, it says the same thing. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing thankfully and in praise and allegiance to God in Christ. Every, without exception. And so, Romans must be read in the light. We're reading Romans with this light on. 
the obedience of Jesus Christ, which was an obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, which in turn is therefore to the extent of God forsakenness. And this is my thought that I want to close with, one that I got hit with while I wasn't in my study and urged myself to write down this. Plumbing the depths of the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion urges a gaze at the width and the breadth of the horizon of the impact of that death and that resurrection. Conversely, a careful consideration of the cosmic universal horizon of salvation and of reconciliation urges a deep and sustained look at the depth of the cross. On top of this, a contemplation of the height of the ascendant Christ, truth ascends to the heaven. Mercy to the clouds. On top of this, a contemplation of the height of the ascendant Christ, who ascended to the throne of the Father as King of Kings. Again, on top of this, a contemplation of the height of the ascendant Christ in his exaltation urges a reflection on our part of the cosmic breadth and width of the crucified Lord of glory's domain. The gospel is the announcement of the dominion of the Lord of glory over all things from the height of his ascendancy and enthronement. We see the vast width and universal breadth and width of his present domain, the Lord of the living and the dead. And so, Father, with this we do reflect and make us reflect because everything comes from you. May we truly see light in your light. May we truly see Romans in the light of the face of Jesus Christ in whose face the light of the glory of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the glory of God emanates constantly. And Father, in this light, may we reflect, and by this, the goal be reached in our study of Romans, that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge would be known by us, appropriated by us, that we may know the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ, which surpasses the knowing of mere human perception and causes a devotedness of allegiance and love in us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.